Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. There's a new show on Comedy Central. Maybe you've seen it. It's called Corporate. It's about two junior executives in training at a giant multinational corporation. They sell guns and tablet computers and bananas. And literally every character on the show is either miserable, terrified, angry, or some combination of those three things. The stars and creators are Jake Weissman and Matt Ingebretson. And I don't think I'm hurting their feelings when I call it one of the bleakest shows on television right now. I mean, take it from Jake. Bleak is kind of what they're going for. I just think that most um, programs about the workplace are a form of escapism. So people go to work and then they come home and the idea is they don't want to see their actual life reflected. They want some better version of what they're going through to be entertained by. But we always felt that uh, comedy should be a catharsis and that, you know, I don't want to pretend that life is better than it is. I want the recognition that my life is bad, so therefore it feels valid. Sorry, everybody. It's Bullseye. <laughs> Coming up, more with Jake Weissman and Matt Ingebretson, two of the most cheerful and sunny young men in comedy today. I think that is the burden of being someone, if you are a hyper self-aware person, you're always balancing two things in your mind, which is, um, I'm at a baseball game right now and having a lovely time and I'm going to die someday. <laughs> They'll also tell me about, <laughs> about why they decided to set their show in an office after literally decades of TV that have done the exact same thing. I mean, everybody goes to work, right? What could be more universal than going to work? Working in an office under the umbrella of a huge corporate giant is our way to talk about what's going on, how we see it with Americans. Um, and it just happens to be in an office, and it just it turns out that if you satirize stuff, it's pretty sad. Then later, graphic novelist Mimi Pond talks about the craziest day of her entire career. I pick up a coffee cup and I throw it at him, but instead of hitting him, I nearly miss hitting Anthony, uh, the other cook. Yeah, that's not even 20% of it. Finally, have you ever wanted to understand comic books? Well, there's a comic book for that. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests this week are Matt Ingebretson and Jake Weissman. They're two young writers and comedians who created and star in the new Comedy Central show, Corporate. Matt and Jake play two junior executives in training at a giant multinational. They're also named Matt and Jake. Their characters are kind of floating around in corporate purgatory. They have just enough power and money to keep working there, not enough to make any real impact. So when a crisis hits, Matt and Jake agree to take on all the work, all the blame, and of course, they get none of the credit. It's also got a great supporting cast, Lance Reddick, who played Cedric Daniels on The Wire, uh, Aparna Nancharla, one of my favorite comics, Baron Vaughn, another of my favorite comics. To call corporate an office comedy is technically true. It's got a little bit of the gallows humor that you see in office space or in Ricky Gervais's The Office, 
the show's characters all have this kind of fluorescent glow, like they're in a morgue. There's a little bit of Terry Gilliam in there, too. But corporate goes beyond your standard office drone nihilism to talk about deeper stuff. Capitalism, art, the meaninglessness of life. Like I said before, nobody on the show is happy. They're all filling an empty void. So why not just stare into the void and crack some jokes? Here's what I mean. In this scene from the show, Jake and Matt are in the boardroom waiting for a morning meeting of executives to kick off. They're hungry, and on the table in front of them is a big plate of bagels and donuts. Do you think we're going to get to eat anything today? Don't count on it. There's a rigid food hierarchy here. Executives get first pick, then junior executives, then us, the junior executives in training. $500 billion corporation, and they never have enough bagels for everyone. Why didn't you eat breakfast before work? I didn't have time. I hit the snooze button 15 times this morning, which is a new record that I'm actually kind of proud of. Did you eat anything? No. I'm trying to watch my figure. I want to have a hot body because I'm tired of developing my personality. Yeah, I've been there. Matt Ingebretz and Jake Weissman, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you guys on the show. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. This is one of the bleakest television programs I've ever watched. (laughs) I I take that as a big compliment. Thank you very much. I'm trying to bring more sadness to TV. Less mirth. Yeah. (laughs) There is like, I mean, you know, the workplace is the either first or second most popular venue for a television sitcom. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. After the family home. That's right. Or a bar. But usually the premise of a sitcom is that this family-like group goes through uh, an outside, faces an outside challenge, typically an outside challenge or a structural challenge. You know, something crazy happens. They have to make a casserole for the boss who's coming over. Yes. Then uh, through a series of humorous events, it resolves itself and every, it turns out okay. Everything ends up being fine. We had no idea that's what a sitcom was supposed to be. <laughs> we had, we made a lot of mistakes making this sitcom. I, I just think that most um, programs about the workplace are a form of escapism. So people go to work and then they come home and the idea is they don't want to see their actual life reflected. They want some better version of what they're going through to be entertained by. But we always felt that uh, comedy should be a catharsis and that, you know, I don't want to pretend that life is better than it is. I want the recognition that my life is bad, so therefore it feels valid. It's like, I like, and, and that's funny. I just think it's funny we spend our whole lives working and we're not that happy. It's really funny. Yeah. Undeniably, it's funny. Oh, so I'm not allowed to deny that? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> is that the ground rules we've agreed you, to? We know we're right. We know what you actually feel about your life. Are there things that you had seen previously that um, made you think, oh, this uh, this can work. This is different from Mary Tyler Moore, but this can work. Mostly in movies, I think. Um, movies like Network or... Um, Dr. Strangelove. I mean, I think we're not necessarily thinking about it as an office comedy. We're more thinking of it as a satire. So I think most comedies, even if it's not at a specific workplace, it kind of is at a workplace. I mean, most shows are at some workplace. It doesn't even matter what it is. It could be a baseball team. They're still at work. But I think we're just more coming from a way to satirize what's going on at the workplace, but also in American culture and society, politically and socially. And I think the working in an office under the umbrella of a huge corporate giant is our way to talk about what's going on 
how we see it with Americans. Um, and it just happens to be in an office, and it just it turns out that if you satirize stuff, it's pretty sad. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear a little bit more uh, from the show. This is a scene that I really loved. Um, Aparna Nancharla, who's a, a wonderful stand-up comic and writer, plays the HR director, Grace, in the company. And this is uh, the opening of an episode where she is basically leading a group of executives through an HR profile of their employees. The average employee has 7.8 suicidal thoughts per day, 18 panic attacks a year, and wonders once an hour, every hour, why this is happening to them. And that concludes my presentation on how Hampton Neville employees cope with the pain of being alive. Okay, thank you, Grace. Should we talk next steps? First step, let us never speak of this again. Yes, that's right. That's really the only step. (laughs) (laughs) Do you feel like your job in this show is basically to identify and name uh, that feeling that was just described? I think so. Yeah, we... The show came a lot out of the feelings that we had working any job that we've had, both jobs that we hated and jobs that we, on the surface, enjoyed, uh, the sort of dread that you felt coming in every day and confusion about why you felt that dread and why you were there at all. And we wanted to just make a show where we talked about that and tried to make it entertaining. Yeah, and I've always just kind of been obsessed with the things that people are feeling but don't feel they're allowed to say. Remember when I was younger, I saw American Beauty, and I don't necessarily stand by that movie now, but I was like, yeah, that's more what the... I grew up in the suburbs. That's more what the suburbs are like than what I've seen portrayed in the suburbs, like with old um, TV shows. And so I think, to me, the fact that people aren't saying something they're feeling is funny. And if you're thinking about death and all that stuff, it's like, isn't everyone thinking about that? But you're not allowed to say it. So I think saying it is just funny in itself because you're not supposed to for some reason. I think that something you said, which is that even when you are in a superficially happy and positive job, you come to realize that, you know, when you were in a terrible job, you had blamed your existential dread on the terrible job, which is not unreasonable. But then you get a pretty good job. I mean, you guys have your own television show. Here I am. I've got my own show on NPR. And good for you. Yeah, way to go. Thank you very much. And uh, you realize, oh, no, existential dread is the human condition. Yes, (laughs) exactly. I also just think it's funny that it's statistically impossible that we're alive. Um, It's amazing (laughs) that we're alive. We made it through our dad's genitals into our mother's uh, parts and we're alive. We made it full term. Oh, my God, we're existing for like five minutes in the scope of the whole universe. And we're just so sad the entire time or uh, for a lot of it. And that's undeniably hilarious. And it's scary and weird. And you kind of can't escape the feeling. But that's just what it is. Jake, besides existential dread, what else is on your list of undeniably hilarious things? <laughs> I love cats. <laughs> um, yeah, oh, that's a really good question. What's really funny? I think the movie Airplane is really good. <laughs> yeah, Airplane is really fun. Yeah, I think it's really funny. Yeah. <laughs> it really holds up. It it's really amazing. That was up. a long time ago now. That's like 40 years ago now. Because it's so a, funny. It's so funny because it's um, a drama that is, it, it's a silly drama. Um, and I think that's what we tried to do is like stuff that's played very straight that's just ridiculous. That's what I think the funniest stuff is because life is this complete drama 
But it really should just be funny because it's ridiculous that you're alive, so you shouldn't take it that seriously. And I think the fact that it's a drama and then punctuated with these these moments where you remember, oh, yeah, I mean, whatever, is the funniest thing possible. Is it weird to pitch a show about uh, the alienating force of late-period capitalism to uh, an anonymous multinational corporation <laughs> well, such as Viacom? Yes. You know, it honestly, I think, helped us because one thing we're pitching the show and the show we're pitching is this is a show about how you all hate your jobs at a corporation and they're all like, oh, that's definitely correct. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're 100% correct. And some of the guys that we pitched the show to – the the characters Matt and I play in the show are kind of like their jobs, like their middlemen to some degree. And I think that they completely related to it. So it actually helped us. And I think if a corporation is going to be evil and do whatever it does, they might as well have a sense of humor. Why are your characters uh, junior executives and not uh, common working men or uh, foolish big shots? I think most of the time... When you're at a company, you're, you're rarely at the top of it. Or even if you're at the top, there's someone above you still. And so your experience is always being pressurized between the people above you and then the people below you. And it's you become crushed in the weight of that. And so we wanted the characters to have no agency in the company. <laughs> but also, to me, there's something pretty um, real about... Having a job that has just enough money that you'd never want to go back to not having that much money. And so junior executives in training, like, there's some hope for them, but that's not real. Like, there's just the sense of hope, and they, they're they kind of just trapped. They have enough money to where they're trapped, um, but they're not happy with where they are. It's kind of like junior executives in training is sort of just like, what is that? It doesn't mean anything. It just means you have a job where theoretically you're better than some people, but you're pretty much worse off than everyone. And there's just sort of a... Um, an existentialist um, Beckett-esque feeling to it where they're never going anywhere. A lot of the darkest comedies on television are still fundamentally life-affirming because they're about friendship. Um, If I think of like, uh, you know, a, a wonderful show that's been on for 10 or 12 years now, Always Sunny in Philadelphia, right? There's no... More, there's no more uh, distressingly themed program than Always Sunny in Philadelphia. In every given episode, they're pretty emotionally committed to something horrible. But ultimately, the grand theme of the program is, for some reason, these people love each other. They don't even really have to explain why or how. It's really just that they love each other. And so you're like, well, I guess I love these people because they have <laughs> friends mm-hmm. or something. Um, And I wonder if you chose not to make a show about two guys who love each other when it could have been two bleak guys. You know, your characters relate to each other reasonably, Mm -hmm. but it's not about you guys loving each other. It sometimes feels manipulative to me that when shows do that, they're extremely dark and they're like, but at least we have friends. And it's like, maybe that's just what people want to watch. But in general, I guess to me, I've always thought of comedy as not necessarily trying to manipulate people. Like there is that type of comedy. But in general, it's like we're just trying to reflect what happens in the world or how we see it. What we think is funniest is that friendship doesn't save this all. Like we're all just trying our best. But I don't know. Even living in L.A., uh, I just feel like everyone's so scared and sad all the time. And they all feel very alone. And I just think that's so funny. And like even if you have allies, you're still – 
stuck there alone, desperately hoping that your life turns out okay. And I, I, I know that sounds dark, but I truly think it's hilarious. And I, I don't think there's any reason why we need sort of the falseness of friendship or certain like music cues to come in for people to watch. If it's funny, it's funny. And I think they'll like us for being funny. Let's take a listen to another clip from uh, the show Corporate, which was co-created by and stars my guests, Matt Ingebretson and Jake Weissman. Matt just BCC'd his superiors in an email. Uh, he was supposed to CC them. Um, and his bosses, John and Kate, uh, come in and they knock on the door and they enter his kind of sad, dark cave in which he works. And they question his work ethic. If you can't manage your emotions, Matt, what makes you think you're qualified to manage people at this company? Honestly, I don't know. Oh. I never really saw myself here. I mean, after college, I volunteered for a program teaching underprivileged kids because I wanted to help people. But then one of the students stabbed me, and the school was pretty dirty, and I realized I, I wasn't cut out for it. So I moved back in with my parents, which I'm pretty sure led to them getting a divorce because... That's what they told me happened. Then I worked a series of jobs that eventually landed me here, where I'm just a cog in a soulless corporate machine, and I'm not... Okay. Well, just make sure that you CC both John and I on all work emails. It's a simple mistake, but it's just important to follow protocol. Yes. Jake, question. Why do you think it's okay to come into work with your shirt untucked? Because life is meaningless and nothing we do matters. Okay, great. Have a great day, Thanks, you guys. <laughs> yes. Have either of you guys had real jobs before? Yeah, I had a lot of, uh, when I moved out here to Los Angeles, I had a lot of day jobs in marketing and social media at major entertainment corporations that I won't name because I might want to work there again someday. But um, that scene was drawn specifically from a job that I had working in social media where my boss would interrogate me about my reasoning behind mistakes I had made. And the reason I made the mistakes were just because I was barely paying attention to what was happening around me, and I, work felt like an out-of-body experience to me. But there were many times where she would call me into her office and ask me why I had made a mistake, and uh, it was uh, harrowing and just felt like I was outside of time and space. One time, <laughs> <laughs> one time she she lectured me about it for so long, I think about half an hour to the point where I had to finally be like, Celeste, you're hurting my feelings right now. <laughs> I just felt like I had no agency. I think I was 22 and just didn't know what I was doing. And so that's kind of where that came from. This isn't really uh, like the ideal time to be launching an entertainment property where um, uh, regular dudes uh, represents two white dudes mm -hmm. in middle age. Mm -hmm. um, did you think about that as you were developing the show? Like, what does it mean that, I mean, I presume you were developing it for yourselves and you're two white dudes. Mm -hmm. But did you think about what does this mean and, like, how, how do we respond to this in making this show? Yeah, I think that we are extremely aware that we are two white dudes and wanted to, I think one of the goals was to portray what it feels like and what it is to be a white dude at this point in time, which is very conflicted and uh, you're often, <laughs> you know, kind of aware that you are a part of a history of not being a good person. And so we wanted to be a little more honest about that. I think a lot of shows about 
straight white dudes are just about party culture or getting stoned, and that is the crux of it, and we wanted it to be a little more complicated and nuanced than that. Yeah, it's confusing because we don't want to hurt anyone, but we're still just trying to have a career. For the first season, we hired um, three female writers, which we thought would help, um, and definitely helps. It really is important to have as many different types of people in the writer's room as possible. Sometimes there's little stuff that you don't realize you just take for granted that is not other people's experience. So I think um, the way to combat that potential problem of having two uh, straight white guys as the leads is to get as many diverse voices as you can um, before you film it. Um, That's the best you can do. Are there any particular things that you feel like you gained by doing that? You know, I think sometimes um, you think of the funny thing first and you come up with a funny idea. And then when you explore that a little further, you might realize, oh, that's funny for the wrong reason. And it often helps to have people who have had experiences to help you tailor those ideas to not be, you know, backwards or wrong in some way or another. We'll have even more from Matt and Jake after we return from a break. Don't go anywhere. Still to come, how they got Lance Reddick, Cedric Daniels from The Wire, to play their boss and what it's like working with someone as insanely good at acting as Lance Reddick, Cedric Daniels from The Wire. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Starbucks. For the past 43 years, Starbucks has served their bold signature espresso. But for the first time ever, they're introducing a second espresso, Starbucks Blonde Espresso. It's smooth and subtly sweet. So whatever your drink is, from a flat white to a nice Americano, try it with Starbucks Blonde Espresso. And as always, you can order ahead on your Starbucks app. Hey, it's Jesse. Did you know you've got access to the entire world of NPR with your smart speaker? Go ahead, try it out. Ask it to play NPR to check the news while you get ready for work or fix dinner. There's a new radio in your house, and it's easier than ever to listen to Morning Edition, Bullseye, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and more. So give it a shot. Ask your smart speaker to play NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests this week are Matt Ingebretson and Jake Weissman. They created and star in the new Comedy Central show, Corporate. Heads up, uh, there is a little bit of frank talk about drug use coming up on the show. Let's hear another clip from uh, Comedy Central's Corporate. Uh, my guests are the uh, co-creators and stars of the program. This episode has um, – it's called Trademark. It's about a guy named Trademark who is a sort of Banksy-like, quote-unquote, street artist. And um, Matt's character, Matt, has uh, started creating this craft beer. Um, and he and, – and Trademark, the – artist wants to turn it into a mass market uh, gentle lager. So this is Jake talking to Matt and saying why he thinks that he, he shouldn't do this. There's something I've been hiding from you, but it's time you knew. Take a look. What is this? It's my tag. I used to be a major street artist back when street art still meant something. You're entrop? It's entropy. Anyway, it doesn't matter. That part of my life is over. You spend years fighting corporations, and then finally you have to admit to yourself you love Southwestern egg rolls. Wow. I'm sorry I said you weren't an artist. This is technically art, if you want to use a really broad 
definition of what art is. Look, Matt, I'm in favor of selling out and making as much money as humanly possible. But if you're going to sell out, you shouldn't do it because Trademark told you to. You should do it for your own reasons. Or for money and fame. Do you guys remember what the art looks like that they're looking at? It's a stick figure drawing of... It's like a bad political cartoon of a large, giant stick figure stomping on tiny human beings and an arrow pointing at the giant stick figure that says capitalism. I think it's a society. It says society. <laughs> and uh, My notes indicate that there is a bubble that says, I'm Mr. Corporation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Who is stepping on society. I think yeah. that's what it is, yeah. <laughs> Can I run a theory by you that I have that I, I'm not 100% sure of, but maybe you guys have some feedback? Please mm-hmm. do. Is Banksy the worst? I think he's the worst. Okay. And and I think – but also, again, I think that's because of capitalism. I think you know the thing about Banksy that people don't realize is it's a brand. Like is he really helping world peace by like putting you know figures on walls in the Middle East? Like do you really care? You're asking for world peace? What does that mean? Like people just buy your art and it's not his fault I don't think. Maybe Banksy's a team of people. Who knows what it is? But I just think it's like there's no way you care about world peace more than you do your bank account. And I just think everyone is forced to become a brand. Everyone's forced to become a CEO of their own thing because there's capitalism is unforgiving and you need money to survive. You need a lot of it. And uh, we just um, we yeah. just think he's so ridiculous. Yeah. And even I think a lot of this episode, too, is about even if you start with good intentions, if you enter into entertainment or anything on a big enough level in America it's very difficult not to be co-opted by the system that you're going against. And so I don't know what Banksy's finances look like, but that was, you know. Even if you go live off the grid, that's still a reaction to corporations. Um, you're still living in a world owned by corporations, and there's not much you can do. And, yeah. again, all you can do is laugh. Yeah. When I was a teenager, uh, Shepherd Fairies, um, uh, Andre the Giant pieces were up all over San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, it's a very interesting kind of deconstruction of the idea of branding. And then, like, th- three years later, he started selling pants at Target. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And then, like, ten years later, it's like, oh, he's redeemed. He used the techniques of Eastern European political propaganda to make a pretty poster for the first black president. Exactly. Fighting the system just yes. becomes a brand. Like, it's really tough because there are people who are idealists and we're all trying to do a really good job while we're alive. But you get caught up in your own lives. You have kids. You have things to do. And you're like, okay, yeah, I guess, I guess I'll do a commercial. You know, like, like, what are you supposed to do? It's, yeah, there's so few options to be that great a person. I think, yeah, and I think too, we're not trying to place a huge amount of judgment. It more is just a commentary of what I think most people go through, which is you hopefully have good intentions to start with, but then end up getting sucked into something that is beyond your control a little bit, or that you don't have a choice and you have to participate in it. So let's hear some more from Comedy Central's corporate. So Jake and Matt are talking to uh, Grace, the HR director, played by Aparna Nancharla, and um, you know, it's just you know it's just water cooler talk. Who do you think designs these coffee cups? A failed art student in a massive amount of college debt. I feel like I never used my communications degree. I mean, I guess I'm talking right now, so that's something. I majored in English, and that should be illegal. Hey guys, 
Want to see the latest nightmare I've been living? I'd love to. This is HD Whistle. It's an anonymous whistleblowing app developed by HR. If you see someone doing something bad, you find the appropriate category, like embezzlement, and click Whistle. And then an upsetting amount of paperwork magically appears on my desk. Why does it have to make that sound? I don't know. It reminds me of walking by a construction site or any other place men are. So if the workplace is this alienating of an environment, and despite the fact that I own my company and have 12 employees, I'm not going to dispute that premise. (laughs) Um, I wonder whether you guys feel like yourselves or comfortable or free from existential burdens when you're in other places. You mean not at work? Yeah, at home, at the ball game. Yeah, I I do, but it's always there. I think that is the burden of being someone, if you are a hyper self-aware person, you're always balancing two things in your mind, which is um, I'm at a baseball game right now and having a lovely time and I'm going to die someday. And so <laughs> I think at work those things are amplified because the situation is a little miserable, but... I certainly feel that every waking moment. <laughs> I think I'm... But not necessarily in a bad way. I mean, it's more like I have a jovial attitude about it where it's like, I'm going to die someday, so I might as well have a great time at this baseball game. I don't know how you feel, but I think I actually feel, I don't know if happiest is the word, but busiest at work. And so that is great because if I can find a purpose in work, like I'm creating something um, or I'm working towards a future for myself or helping my bank account or doing something constructive, work is the most distracting place that I can be. And that's great because it feels productive. And I think in this society, it's like feeling productive is what makes you happiest. Can we talk about Lance Reddick for a second? Yes. He plays your boss on the show. Uh, the CEO of the company, Christian DeVille. And he's kind of this intense maniac. So I want to play a little clip of him. This doesn't really need a lot of setup. He's leading a meeting of executives in the corporate boardroom. He is in a bad mood. And he's giving his employees kind of a pep talk. I want to tell you a story. It's about a shepherd. One day he lost his entire flock. I mean, every single sheep took off except one. So there he is out in the middle of this open field with just one sheep. And what do you think he did? He pulled out a gun and he blew its brains out. Then he went out and got himself a real job because being a shepherd, he Well, people, that ain't me. Because we are in cattle country and I am Ben Cartwright and this is Bonanza. Lance Reddick is on Bosch, mm-hmm. and he's also uh, well-known from The Wire. Yes. Why did you think that he was funny? <laughs> well, um, first of all, uh, as I was saying about Airplane, um, Leslie Nielsen was a dramatic actor, and he played it straight in Airplane, and that's why it's so funny, because he's saying insane things. And Lance Reddick is one of the most gifted, intense actors <laughs> that has come around in the last 30 years. And if you give him things to say about hurricanes and his penis, it's like going to be funny because it's 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 said with this like Yale graduate school level of gravitas. And we're just saying dumb things. So we, we kind of knew that. But we want but there's a di- I mean, there's a difference between somebody who 
you know, there's a certain extent to which you can write for somebody with a lot of gravitas and just write against their gravitas, mm-hmm. and you know, they'll go up there and have a beautiful voice like Lance does, mm-hmm. and you know, sell it. But there's still there are additional elements to comic acting that go beyond. Uh, simply playing emotional truth, generally speaking, that are like rhythmic and, you know, that kind of thing. And Lance, I think, is someone who is largely known for his dramatic acting but is very funny and likes being funny. And so he's able to mix in his dramatic acting chops but with his own sensibility and understanding of the comedy that I think makes it work. There were also two other things. One is when he was in graduate school for um, acting, he did do a lot of comedies. We didn't know that until we cast him, but once he started getting typecast as this like intense, hard-boiled cop, he kind of stayed there, and people only saw him as that. But he was in a Funny or Die video, I think called Toys Are Me, where it is like a five-minute comedy video, and he's so funny in it, and he's playing a very similarly intense person, but saying absurd stuff. And we just knew, like, what a per... I mean, if we can get a... You can get an actor from The Wire to say dumb stuff, and he's been in a comedy video, like... It, it was honestly the best thing we've ever done, is casting that guy. Yeah, you should watch, if anything else, watch the show to see Lance Reddick. Well, I, I met that dude backstage at an NPR Ask Me Another show maybe six months ago. And, you know, I walked into the the green room, and I was like, oh, that dude's from The Wire. <laughs> first. <laughs> yeah. That was my first reaction. But then, you know, he has such... Um, he has such a he has such the bearing of the characters that he plays in real life. He's a very convivial guy, oh, yeah. or at least was backstage when I was chatting Absolutely. with him. Yeah. But it's almost I found it almost distressing to exchange pleasantries with a man <laughs> who spoke in that manner. Yes, it is confusing to talk to him because on camera he's so intense and intimidating, but off camera he's a great listener and kind and thoughtful, and it's weird balancing those things in your head as you're speaking to him. It's, like, also, it's also hard to not ask him just about the wire. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. It took, I, I spent the entire, the entire time focusing on not asking him about the wire. I'm yeah. like, I'm going to talk to this guy about Bosch. I'm going to talk to this guy <laughs> yes. about whether he's heard Ask Me Another before. Uh-huh. I'm going to like I'm thinking of different things and talk to this guy about how he appears to be younger than me despite probably being 20 years older than me. <laughs> like how I'm going to ask this guy about what it's like to look at things so clearly. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Apparently. Yeah. Yes. Then right at the end as I left, I accidentally called him by his character from my name. <laughs> Literally on my way out the door, like, goodbye! <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah, I think Lance loves to goof around, and he loves silliness. I think people think, because people were in dramas, they're very serious people, but what a relief for him to get to say silly things. I mean, it's like, I think it's just fun for him. Yeah. Tell me about how you manage the world of this show, because I think it's so interesting that it is in these hallways and offices where the lights are always at 65% and the walls are always about to cave in. Mm-hmm. But then you want to go on these crazy adventures within this profoundly claustrophobic world. One thing we're pretty obsessed with is the fact that, you know, humans used to live in the woods and then we decided that agriculture was a good idea and so we built all these buildings and now we go to work in these ridiculous buildings. And I think there is a feeling of claustrophobia and like it's like the wrong thing. Like why are we in suits sitting in at cramped in cramped spaces <laughs> sitting at desks that are giving us sco- hurting our backs? But 
the imagination that we could be in the woods or that we're not supposed to be here is kind of what gets us through everything. And I think we have wild imaginations and we just like thinking that way. But the reality is society is trying to constrict us to these boxes to define us that way and control us. But really, we just... Whenever I'm in an office, it feels trippy to me. It's crazy that I'm spending my life in this tiny little place, and all I'm thinking about is everything else I could be doing. So that's kind of what we wanted to talk, like, made it feel like it's like, imagine if this didn't have to be like this. I think, too, that, I mean, a lot of the visual aesthetic was built in from the beginning, um, but was then executed very well by Pat Bishop, who directed every episode. And we wanted to, I think the office has been explored in a lot of different ways, but we wanted to explore it a little more visually and try to represent the emotions you feel in an office space um, a little more, yeah, almost like a mushroom trip, essentially. I think that there's a psychedelic nature to the way that our show feels. We had we interviewed a production designer early on who described reading the script as though he was reading like a weird mushroom trip, and I think that we kept that in mind, where we take small moments and blow them out in a way where it allows us to explore it in a little more depth, and so... Yeah, I think in managing the world, a lot of that was Pat Bishop, our director of photography, Christoph Landsberg, and Melanie Pizes Jones, our production designer, wrangled that in. Have you guys had experiences uh, taking mushrooms? Yes. Yeah. Actually, we've come up with some ideas for episodes while on mushrooms. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so and I think mushrooms are wrongly classified as a drug. I think they're one of the few times that I'm truly optimistic and thankful. They're actually and- a topping. Yes, yes, they're topping. <laughs> um, I think that they're – I don't do any drugs or drink or anything, but I will do mushrooms and I've done acid once. And those things are more just helpful. They're more therapeutic. They remind me of why the world is good. And I, it allows me to look at really simple things like plants and be like, oh, my God, plants. That's incredible. And it makes me think of the whole history of the universe to how we got here. And that's sort of how we wanted to feel. It's like, how did we get in this office? This is crazy that we're here. No, really, it's crazy. Look at how crazy it is. Yeah. And, yeah, to everyone listening, please do them responsibly, but we would highly encourage you to do mushrooms at some point in your life because it is a therapeutic, beautiful it experience. It does help you see that life is good. I've never done mushrooms before. I think you should. It's not really a drug. You can't really be addicted to them, I don't think. It'd be pretty hard, and it truly, if you have depression... There's a lot of studies that say it can be helpful. And it, again, a flower is beautiful, but when you see it through the lens of a mushroom, you're like, oh, a flower is not just beautiful, it's everything. And that sounds ridiculous, but it has helped me tremendously. And as a writer, it just allows me to see the beauty in the banal. More Bullseye after a quick break. Still to come, writer and cartoonist Mimi Pond tells us about the craziest day of her entire career. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message comes from Independent Lens, an Emmy award-winning documentary series featuring films from across the country that remind us we're all neighbors. See their unique stories Monday nights at 10, 9 central on PBS and streaming free on independentlens.org. Presented by ITVS. I'm Ophira Eisenberg. Join me on NPR's Ask Me Another as we challenge contestants and celebrities to nerdy word games, music parodies, and ponderful trivia. Find us every week on the NPR One app and wherever you listen to podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We'll get back to the show in a second. But first, 
I want to tell you about a new podcast at Max Fun that I am really excited about. It's called Switchblade Sisters. So every week on the show, April Wolf, who is also one of the hosts of our film talk show, Hushacha, talks with a different woman in film about a genre movie of her choosing. So we're talking about horror movies, action movies, sci-fi movies, that kind of thing. April knows everything about these movies. And the films that people pick are always great. The conversation's totally fascinating. They talk about craft and process and just the emotional impact of movies that aren't necessarily the kind of movies that critics usually talk about. And, you know, they talk about the state of filmmaking and criticism, especially for a woman uh, as well. So recently, April got to talk with Barbara Crampton, uh, who is one of those iconic horror actresses. She was in Reanimator. She was in Chopping Mall, Body Double. Puppet Master, From Beyond. Our producer, Casey, says absolutely, positively, the queen of 80s horror movies. And anyway, she and April talked about this French movie from a couple of years ago, a cannibalism horror film called Raw. So if that sounds cool to you, and you know who you are, people to whom that sounds cool, get your phone out, open whatever you use to listen to podcasts, and subscribe to Switchblade Sisters. You'll be glad that you did. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are Jake Weissman and Matt Ingebretz. And Matt and Jake are the stars and creators of Comedy Central's Corporate. So let's listen to one more scene from Corporate. And my guests are the creators and stars of that show on Comedy Central. In this episode, uh, a an insensitive tweet about a natural disaster has kind of threatened the whole corporate structure of the company. They're trying to figure out what to do. And uh, the two of you guys are sent to figure out who sent this tweet. And you're walking through the halls of Hampton DeVille, the multinational corporation in question, and... It's very gray and dim. It's You're just kind of catching fleeting glimpses of people sitting in the cubicles. Um, one person's playing solitaire. One person's sort of blankly eating a piece of pink cake. And uh, this is what we hear. Look at these people. Is everyone at this company clinically depressed? Everyone here is hanging by a thread. They could snap at any moment. These were all children once. Happy, innocent children. And now look at them. How did this happen? They're all just trying to fill the void. The void? You know, the emptiness that exists inside all of us. All right, of course. The void. <laughs> oh, oh, right, of course, the void. <laughs> I forgot about the void. Um, Has having your own television program, the kind of unlikeliest outcome of starting an entertainment career uh, shoveled anything into the void? You know, it's interesting because it's wonderful and our lives are better now. So there's no question about that. 
Um, and I think if you have a brand that is based in sort of depression or sadness, um, if you do start to succeed at all, it is compromised. But luckily, <laughs> luckily, the entertainment business is fluctuates so much that you always have too much anxiety. So you can still access that horrible feeling, even when you're successful, that it's all going to go away. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, you know, if we get a season two, it's all going to be about how happy we are. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Have you added anything over the course of this interview to your list of the incontrovertibly funny? Oh, my God. Well, just, I guess what I I will say. So far, you... just to recap, we had Airplane. Oh, right. And uh, the recognition of the, I mean, the darkness I, at the core of all our lives. I don't know. If there's Acknowledgement a... maybe would be the better word. Yeah. I find this location that we're talking in to be very funny. You... It feels like we're in the hull of a ship, and you do look like you belong on a ship. Uh, <laughs> you have a beard, a, wi- a beard that looks like it's been blown by the winds of the Baltic Sea, and we're, you're going to tell us that our father was killed and that you're taking us to a faraway <laughs> land or something like that. I'm also wearing the pants of a Ukrainian pirate. Yeah, yes. I was going to say, the way you dress... Um, like a contemporary Ukrainian pirate. That's oh, right. Yeah, a really a hip, not a historical one. Yes. I guess what I'm finding funny is that... How much better you dress than me, and how much better I could be doing, and like knowing that I just don't know how to be a man. Yeah, <laughs> but you do. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, that's very kind of you. Thank you very I mean much. It well, um, Matt, Jake, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was really great to get to talk to you, and I really love the show. Thanks, thanks for having, thanks for having, having us. your show. Matt Ingebretson and Jake Weissman. They're comedians. They also have a television show. It's called Corporate. You can see it Wednesdays at 10, 9 Central on Comedy Central or streaming on the Comedy Central website. It is very funny and very bleak. Don't say I didn't warn you. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Now it's time for a semi-regular segment we do here on the show. It's called The Craziest day of my entire career. Mimi Pond is, for real, one of the most talented people that we have had on the show. She is a cartoonist or a comics artist. Her work has appeared in the National Lampoon, in the New York Times, in the Los Angeles Times. She had a regular comic in Seventeen magazine for a while. She's also a TV writer. She wrote for Pee Wee's Playhouse and Designing Women, among others. And she also wrote one of the most iconic episodes of The Simpsons ever. Hey, Santa, what's shaking, man? What's your name, partner? Uh, little partner? Well, I'm Bart Simpson. Who the hell are you? I'm Charlie Old St. Nick. Oh, yeah? We'll just see about that. So, oh! Homer. I want a word with you in Santa's workshop, little boy. Cover for me, Alfie. Don't kill me, Dad. I didn't know it was you. Nobody knows. It's a secret. I didn't get my bonus this year. But to keep the family from missing out on Christmas, I'd do anything. Oh, say, Dad, you must really love us to sink so low. And before all of that, Mimi was a waitress. She worked at a handful of diners in the 70s. And as I'm sure anyone who has ever worked in the food service industry will tell you, those jobs are tough. Fortunately for Mimi, it turned into good material. She's written two great graphic novels based on her time as a server. The first was Over Easy in 2014. The most recent is The Customer is Always Wrong. It's about a young, aspiring artist named Madge. Madge works in a diner in Oakland in the late 70s, just like Mimi did. We asked her to tell us about the craziest 
day of her entire career. And Mimi got back to us real quick. She knew. I mean, being a server can be kind of a nightmare. The bad moments stick out. Anyway, here's Mimi. Hi, I'm Mimi Pond, and this is the craziest day of my career. So the protagonist in my graphic novel is a waitress named Madge who works in a restaurant in Oakland. It's a thinly veiled and fictionalized version of my real life. So one thing I can probably talk about is this story, which really actually did happen almost the way I described it, both uh, now and in my book, The Customer is Always Wrong. There was a lot going on in Oakland in the late 70s and also in the world. I just feel like besides that restaurant being a very vivid and colorful place, both visually and with the people who worked there, because the restaurant manager hired people on the basis of a joke or a dream. He was kind of casting his own strange anarchic opera in a way. So back in 1979, I was working as a waitress at Mama's Royal Cafe in Oakland, California. The restaurant specialized in breakfast uh, and lunch. Um, it was only open usually from about 8 to 3 o'clock every day, um, but the owner had this idea that he would expand the menu and open for dinner and started serving, you know, fancy stuff for back then in the late 70s like chicken piccata and uh, things with, with exotic ingredients like tarragon. Who knew? <laughs> it was a bold new world. Um, and it was usually fun to work dinners, um, but there was one evening when it wasn't. Working with me that night at the restaurant were Anthony, the cook who cooked the regular daytime kind of meals like omelets and sandwiches and, and uh, hamburgers and the like. There was Jimmy, who was there to cook the fancy dinner menu that the owner of the restaurant had designed to, you know, bring in evening customers. Then there was Kevin, the gay dishwasher, who had a real talent for constructing fascinating outfits out of uh, thrift store purchases. I mean, all to his credit, it was, like, really awesome what he could do with, like, a pair of flowered um, bell-bottoms from the 60s. He would peg them and, and then turn them into like these crazy punk pants. But he was constantly admiring himself in the mirror, just like could not get enough of himself. And uh, he was always singing along with the radio and, you know, in, in his mind he was, you know, probably in an early MTV video. He was probably on speed is what he was on, because <laughs> they were all on something. I was working a dinner shift um, with an, another waiter, and everything was going pretty smoothly. Um, and then I was waiting on a couple, and they ordered, you know, something like veal scalpini and, you know, chicken piccata or something like that. So I, I go to put in the order, and Jimmy, the cook who is there to cook the, the dinner entrees, is missing. And I say to Anthony, the other cook, who is the person who is there cooking burgers and sandwiches, I said, where did Jimmy go? He says, I don't know. Maybe the bathroom. So I went and knocked on the bathroom door. I don't get an answer. I'm starting to get a little panicked. 
I'm so frazzled, I forget to bring these people their dinner salads. So they're sitting there with nothing. They're getting madder and madder. In the meantime, I remember that I'm supposed to get salads, and I look, and all the salad plates are gone. And I say to the dishwasher, I need some more salad plates. Kevin, the dishwasher, is too busy singing along with Young Americans by Bowie on the radio. And I, I've interrupted him, so now he's pissed off, and he, he screams at me, get him yourself, So <laughs> he's pissed me off so much that I, I pick up a coffee cup and I throw it at him. But instead of hitting him, I nearly miss hitting Anthony, uh, the other cook, who then starts swearing at me. Now I know I'm really in trouble because I'm going to have to ask Anthony to cook something, and, and he's mad at me. And meanwhile, I'm knocking on the door and no answer. And, you know, I, I go back to the table and bring, finally bring the people their salads. And, and they're just fuming at this point because it's been like, what, 20 minutes or something? And um, finally, it turns out that Jimmy's on the nod in the bathroom because it turns out, who knew? He's a junkie. <laughs> So Jimmy's AWOL. No one's getting any dinner entrees tonight. I have to go to, not only to this table, but to many other tables and explain to them that the wonderful dinner entrees that they have come in search of are not on the menu tonight, but that our other cook would be happy to make them a hamburger or a sandwich or an omelet. Everyone just gets up and leaves, and I make no money that night, and I have this pain in my neck that won't go away for weeks. They had to call the manager who had to come in and he was pissed off and I already felt terrible that I had almost blinded Anthony the cook uh, with flying porcelain fragments and wanted to confess my sins to him but he he stormed in and <clears throat> just headed straight for the kitchen and, and started cooking but by then everyone was gone. You might think, after hearing everything that happened that evening, that somebody would have wound up getting fired. But of course, that was not the case in this restaurant where our beloved manager's credo was the customer is always wrong. It was fun and exciting because the manager who we all worked under made it that way. Um, he, his attitude was that we weren't all really, you know, people who worked in a restaurant. We were artists who were, you know, who were observing everything going on while we were sort of pretending to be waitresses and fry cooks and dishwashers. And this was, the, these jobs we had were basically just a goof that we were uh, enduring for the sake of reporting on it. He was more on our side than the customers. It didn't mean that, that we didn't give good service. It just meant that they had your back. He particularly had your back and would stand up to obnoxious customers. But that evening, it was more about the obnoxious employees than the customers. It was no surprise that shortly after that, they decided not to serve dinners anymore. Mimi Pond, with the craziest day of her entire career. Her latest book is called The Customer is Always Wrong. It's out now through the great comic book publisher Drawn and Quarterly. It is really fun, really compelling. You can order it on the Drawn and Quarterly website or wherever you buy books. And I, I really can't recommend Mimi's books enough. They're hilarious and touching and beautiful and great. I, I really love them. Hey, speaking of comic books, 
We like to wrap up every episode with a culture recommendation from me. It's the outshot. It's kind of a cliche now to say that comic books aren't just for kids. Obviously, they're not just for kids. I mean, Art Spiegelman wrote Mouse like 30 years ago. But once you've decided that comics are or can be for grown-ups, then where do you go from there? What's well, a good landing spot? If you took a set of literature classes in school, but you've never read a comic book without capes in it, even if you've got a copy of Mouse or Persepolis or Why the Last Man or whatever, how do you process it? Can I recommend a book, a comic, I mean? Get yourself a copy of Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud. It is, and I mean this, one of the clearest, smartest, most insightful works of criticism I have ever read. It's a comic book about comic books that assumes you know nothing about comic books, and it is absolutely brilliant. McCloud wrote the book 25 years ago now. And even then, everyone cool knew that comics could be smart and sophisticated and dark and anything else than any other medium could be. But there was almost no one trying to explain the language of comics. I mean, there wasn't even a definition of exactly what comics were. So McCloud went ahead and made one up. Juxtapose pictorial in other images in deliberate sequence. That's Scott on my friend Roman's great show, 99% Invisible. If you missed it, uh, he said, juxtaposed pictorial and other images in deliberate sequence. But in the book, the working definition that he uses, the shorter one, is sequential art. That means comic books, but it also means things that came before. Stories told by putting pictures next to each other. From ancient art in caves to papyrus to serial paintings. There were a bunch of examples of sequential art. And then when the printing press came along in the 15th century, things started to look like what we'd recognize as comics. What's interesting is once you hit print, and this is from 1450, by the way, all of the artifacts of modern comics start to present themselves. Rectilinear panel arrangements, simple line drawings without tone, and a left-to-right reading sequence. And with a hundred years, you already start to see word balloons and captions. And it's really just a hop, skip, and a jump from here to here. That's gotten a TED Talk from a few years ago. In the book, once he's defined his terms and broadly outlined the history, he kind of goes from there. And every time I read Understanding Comics, it's a good hammock book. It only takes a few hours to read. Every time I read Understanding Comics, the insights that he drops almost casually stun me. McLeod talks about our relationship with the icon, the abstracted graphic stand-in, about why a cartoon face is as powerful as or maybe even more powerful than a realistic face. As he traces this spectrum from literal and realistic to abstract and cartoony, He also adds other descriptions. The complex, the detailed, feels objective. The simple feels subjective. The detailed and realistic feels more specific. The abstract feels universal. And as you read and watch, you start to feel like you're learning a new language. And then you realize he's only beginning to touch on 
language. The purest abstraction in a comic book is actual words. So there isn't only one line between real and abstract pictures. There's a triangle, three vertices running between reality, language, and the pictorial. And then he hits you with a big one. The central power of comics comes not just from the combination of words and pictures, and actually, as far as McLeod is concerned, something like the family circus, which has a picture, one picture, and a caption, is a cartoon, not a comic. The central power of comics doesn't come from that combination. It comes from the gutter, which is the comics word for the space between the panels. So let me explain. If we see, for example, a picture of an axe murderer, and he's got his axe behind his head, he's primed to strike some hapless victim in one panel. And then the next panel, we see the night sky, and there's a scream stretching out across it, right? Written out in letters. Ah! We know what happened in between. Our minds work by understanding patterns by presuming data points that are between the data points that we can observe directly. That's how film frames become motion inside our brains, and it's also how stories are told in comics, between the frames, in the gutter. Comics is a kind of call and response in which the artist gives you something to see within the panels and then gives you something to imagine between the panels. In fact, that is the thing that makes the comics so powerful. The reader, or the looker, or whatever we're called, the reader is the one pulling the weight. The author gives us the moments. We make the story. We see the axe being wielded. We hear the scream, and we are accomplices in the murder. Soon, McLeod is wondering about color and line and about literally what art is and why people make it. But despite the breadth of this work, and it does cover a lot of territory, he's very modest. He's there, guiding us through it all in his lightning bolt t-shirt and his opaque eyeglasses. Just this friendly cartoon telling us an amazing story. A story that's about the possibilities of our stories. Because understanding comics starts as an inquiry into reading comics, but it ends as a kind of call to arms for creators. All you need, he says, is the desire to be heard, the will to learn, and the ability to see. Why is this important? I think this is important because media, all media, provide us a window back into our world. Now, it could be that motion pictures and and eventually virtual reality or something uh, equivalent to it, some sort of immersive display, is going to provide us with our most efficient escape from the world that we're in. That's why most people turn to storytelling is to escape. But media provides us with a window back into the world that we live in. Actually, that's not quite how it ends. It actually ends with his wife coming into the room and saying to the reader that she has to deal with all this cockamamie theorizing all day, every day. It's, uh, like I said, it's a, it's a surprisingly modest book. That's my outshot. 
That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where when I came in the other night, oh boy, there was a sign that said, I saw some filming going on, and there was a sign that said, this is filming, it is not real. And then I turned the corner, and it was a recreation of the racist protests in Charlottesville. It was deeply deeply upsetting. Uh, But that's show business. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Christian Duenas and Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow at MaximumFun.org is Jesus Ambrosio. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our special thanks to our buddy Roman Mars for giving us that clip from his awesome show, 99% Invisible. If you are not a 99% Invisible listener, I cannot recommend his stories about design and architecture in I just love that show to death, and I love Roman. So thank you, Roman. Our theme was recorded by the Go team and provided to us by Memphis Industries. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And while you're at it, try logging on to the website Facebook.com and checking out the Bullseye page there. We'll tip you off to upcoming interviews. We share our past interviews there uh, Uh, We share all kinds of stuff. Apparently, Kevin says he just posted a picture of a man eating an avocado whole, skin and all, like it was an apple. Just terrifying. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.